We have female scripture readers on occasion here, uh, but we definitely do it on Easter Sunday. Thank you, Pat. Because the first evangelist was a female. Mary had reached the tomb first, and she's the one who first read and proclaimed the good news. So we're grateful to uh, look at that this morning. Back in December, when I was thinking about the, my sermon schedule, I knew I was coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought, well, there's seven weeks in the season of Lent, and uh, seven Sundays, and there are seven statements in the Gospel of John called the I Am Statements, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door. I'm the bread. I'm the light of the world. And so he talks about these things in a way all the way through the, cha- uh, the chapters of God, John's gospel to point to himself. He's always trying to point things to himself so people could see who Jesus is, to see that he's different than anybody else that was ever on the planet, and to believe in him. That's the goal of God's, John's gospel, for people to see Jesus and to believe in Jesus and so I knew in the, in the seven statements of the, the I am statements, I was going to preach on this particular text, I am the resurrection and the life on Easter Sunday, April the 16th. But what I didn't realize at the time when I was planning it, that that would be to the day, the one year anniversary of Connor Vogel's death. And this also happened to be the text I used that, that uh, day for his funeral. And so timing like this happens just by God's providence. And as we sit here, many of us know Connor, the Vogel family. We're happy to sit here with you on this Easter Sunday and surround you in truth and tears but, but when you come to this text, there's all kinds of mixed emotions. And so it's okay to have all kinds of mixed emotions because this is the perfect text for mixed emotions, which is exactly what we see here from the people surrounding Jesus and Lazarus' death. So as we look at that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so honored to be here on this beautiful Sunday morning and to think about the power that you have over death. And so I pray as each of us are here, we're here not by accident, but by your divine providence to see your glory and to believe. And my prayer is that you would open our hearts and minds, our souls to your truth in Jesus name. Amen. In the Gospel of John, there are two significant mountain peaks, you might say. And the first one is reached in John chapter 11. There are are seven miracles that Jesus does. They're not just seven I am statements. They're actually seven signs. They're called signs. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000. Jesus heals a man who is born blind. These are signs that Jesus says they point to me. And so here we reach the first of this mountain peak and the very last, the seventh sign where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And the goal of each of these signs, and maybe specifically this one, is that when you reach the mountain peak in John chapter 11, you're supposed to see the second peak that you're going to climb from John chapter 12 to John chapter 20. 
And the peak of John chapter 20 is Jesus' own resurrection. His own power over his own death. And so as we look at this particular sign, we're looking towards John chapter 20. And we're seeing that not not only is Lazarus, uh, Jesus is able to bring Lazarus from the tomb. He's able to conquer death itself. And so when we come to John chapter 11, we're thinking ahead to the empty tomb of John chapter 20. And Jesus wants us to know that anyone who believes in him, not just Lazarus, Not just Jesus, but anyone who believes in Jesus, he has the power to bring them from death to life. That's the destination. For John, all of these signs are pointing in a particular direction, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the destination for John. And so my question for each of us as we sit here this morning is we are all on a journey to a particular destination. And my question is, what's your destination? Everybody's sitting here, but yet everybody's still moving and moving forward. And my question is, what's your destination and how is it you're going to arrive at that particular destination? So as we examine the seventh sign, this resurrection of Lazarus, I want to see it in two different ways. First of all, I want us to look at Jesus's reaction to the news of Lazarus's death. Jesus reaction. And then secondly, I want to look at Jesus's response How does he respond to Mary? How does he respond to Martha? How does he respond to the skeptical crowd? First of all, let's look at Jesus' reaction, the first few verses that Pat read for us. Bethany is like a suburb or a small town outside of Jerusalem. So it's two miles east of Jerusalem, and in between Bethany and Jerusalem is a valley. It's called the Kidron Valley. And in that valley is an olive orchard. And in that olive orchard is a small little garden, and it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when Jesus is two miles away, he can definitely see Jerusalem. He can see his future. And so he comes uh, to Bethany because he's gotten a message from somebody, from Mary and Martha, that their brother is ill. In Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are a family that Jesus loves very much. You see it in verse 3 and in verse 5. And he gets some news that Lazarus is ill. And obviously the news is coming to Jesus because they're hoping he can come and maybe do something. And here's Jesus' response to that news. Verse 6. When Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, Now, that doesn't look like a loving response to me. When I, I think about being ill and needing help, I don't think somebody's saying, you know, I'll be there in a couple of days. And so Jesus waits two days, and then it takes him some time to get there. So by the time he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so Jesus demonstrates his love for his friends by delay. And my question then is, why the delay? Why is Jesus delaying? There must be some purpose. And he tells us in verse 4 that Jesus' delay is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God, Jesus, may be glorified through it. Do you hear that? The delay is so you and I and these people could see God's glory. Now, Now, when I read this, here's how I think. So Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. 
Yet Jesus delayed two days for Lazarus to die, for these people to go through suffering and pain, all for God's glory, all to see glory. So glory, seeing glory, is more important than suffering and death. That's what I'm thinking as I read this. So then I'm asking myself, well, what is this glory? Because if glory is more important, seeing this glory is more important than your own life and suffering, I really want to know what this glory is. So what is this glory? Now, the difficulty about describing glory is you can't really describe it. It's not like describing a soccer ball. Easy to describe a soccer ball. It's round. You kick it, you try to get it into this net and score a goal. It's a lot like a basketball. It's a lot, a lot of ways you could describe a soccer ball. But when you're trying to describe a soccer ball, that's a lot easier than describing something like beauty. How would you describe beauty? Well, it's difficult. And what you do, because it's difficult, is you point to something. You say, wow, look at these flowers. They're beautiful. You can't really describe it with words. You look at a picture, you look at a person, you look at a painting, you look at creation and say, well, beauty is, it's a lot like this. And that's exactly what happens when you're trying to describe glory. It's very hard to describe in words. It's easier to describe in pictures. And Jesus is going to give a picture for these people to say Jesus is glorious. Now, when you Google the word glory... And you click on images, as I did this week. What do you think the main picture is? It's the sunrise, either in the mountains or at the beach. And typically there's somebody standing there doing this right here. And then just glory. Just like a sunrise service maybe this morning. The sun comes over the horizon, over the waters, and you can't really say anything because saying something would kind of make it smaller. So you just go, oh, that's awesome. That's glorious. That's maybe how you might see it. A definition, again, hard to describe, but here's my definition of glory. Glory is the visible explosion of the infinitely great attributes of God. The visible explosion of the infinitely great attributes of God. So imagine all of God's attributes were like a firecracker. And they exploded out and you could see all of God's mercy, all of his justice, all of his kindness, all of his love, all of his grace. You could just see it all at once. And if you could see it all at once, you would say, that's glorious. It's the visible expression of all of his great characteristics. That's how I would describe glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare, what do they declare? The glory of God. So when you see creation, when you look outside, you say, wow, it's a glorious day. And it doesn't tell you everything about God, but it tells you some things about God. Like, if this is so beautiful, whoever created must be truly beautiful. And so it just gives you a little slice. It gives you a little handle on the glory of God. So that's my definition. Now, let me try to maybe give you a couple of pictures, because I know there are a lot of children here might be a little anxious in their seat right now. And let me just see if I can give you a picture, two pictures that I thought of. First of all, I saw a video that I'm sure if I've seen it, many of you have already seen it because I'm I have a big lag response on social media. 
And this video was an older man, probably 65 or so, and he's been colorblind since birth. And he received a pair of glasses. I don't know if this was at a birthday or something, but he received. How many see this video? Okay, quite a few of you. So he gets this pair of glasses, and the video is just him sitting in a chair, and he's going to put on these glasses for the first time where he can see color. Now, according to Google, our eyes have the ability to take in about 10 million different colors. Imagine that. So all kinds of different shades. Your eyes, a healthy eye, can take in 10 million different colors all at one time. And here's a man who's been able to see two colors. And he's going to put on some glasses to go from two to 10 million. All right, so he slides the glasses out. He puts them on. And what's his first reaction? He takes them off and starts crying. Why? It's completely overwhelming, this guy. He's gone from two to ten million. He does it two more times. He puts them on. He looks at his kid. starts crying, takes them back off. He cannot believe it because he's seen something that's so overwhelming. The only way you can describe it is glorious. How many are Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory fans? Now... At age 29, I like the older version of Willy Wonka in the 54. I like the older version, the 1971 version. But both of them have the same scene. Remember the five people get the golden tickets? And they go into the factory. And the first thing they do is they're going to go down this funky little hallway. And they open this door. And what do they open the door to? The chocolate room. Remember? If you love chocolate, this is your favorite scene of the whole movie. It's got the chocolate waterfall, right? The chocolate river. And what do you find out about this room? What's awesome is not just the chocolate waterfall, but what? Everything is edible. It's like a candy store exploded in this room. So anything you pick up is edible. It's all delicious. And in the movie, what happens? They all like race around. I mean, they want to try to eat one thing of everything all at once. So it's, it's so awesome. I've got to have this and I've got to have this. And I, it's like they're taking it in. And if you love candy and if you're a kid, how would you describe that? Glorious. <laughs> glorious. This is a glorious thing. It's just the what happens with the glory of God is his goodness. All of his goodness explodes and you put on glasses and you can't you can't even absorb how awesome it is. We don't have the capacity to see all the goodness of the glory of God. It's so overwhelming that if you could really get your handle on it. It would reorient how you think about suffering and death. The glory of God is bigger and better than suffering and death. And if you have your handle on that, then you can live through the difficult times that Lazarus and Mary and Martha have to live through. Now, Jesus knows we can't handle all of his glory at one time. We can't handle this explosion. So he's just trying to give us little slices, little pieces of his glory. And here is actually a fairly big slice. He arrives at Bethany. He has this two-day delay. He's doing it for glory. 
He's hoping that the glory that explodes here in chapter 11 leads people to believing. That's the whole goal of glory. God has a goal, glory, and the end of that is belief. He wants people to believe. And you notice he, he encounters three different people here, Martha first, then Mary, his, her sister, and then this skeptical crowd. Verse 21 and 32, the, the two sisters have the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a question of uncertainty, maybe even a little suspicion. Why, why didn't you come earlier? If you could have come earlier, something could have happened differently. And then Jesus responds to Martha and then Mary, and then the skeptical crowd in each in a different way. Let's look at how he first responds to Martha, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never not, de- never die. Do you, Martha, do you believe this? Now, this is a very um, common conversation Jesus has in the Gospel of John. He encounters different people in the Gospel of John with different events, and he tries to use the events to shape their vision to see them. So, for instance, in John chapter 4, he meets a woman at a well, and this woman is dying of thirst. And he says, you have a physical thirst that's a sign of your spiritual thirst. And I am the life-giving water. If you could just see me, lady, you would have life-giving water. The same thing with the paralytic who, in John chapter 5, he's crippled. And he says, I can't get well. I can't get into the place where I can get well. I need some help. And Jesus looks at the man and says, I'm the way that you get well. I'm constant, Jesus constantly using these events to point to himself. He does the same thing here with Martha. Martha starts discussing some future resurrection, and Jesus says, Martha, no, the real resurrection is here. See me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, he will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And it's so important to see what Jesus is doing here, and it's so important to do this at a funeral, and that is you have to tell people the truth. Jesus comes to Martha with the truth. Martha comes to Jesus asking this question, Jesus, where were you? And Jesus turns it around and says, Martha, where are you? See, the big a question that needs to be answered today and at a funeral is not where is God in my life, but where are you with God? That's the most important question that can be asked and answered by anybody. Now, I've I've stood at a lot of gravesides and asked questions like, where was God? But what he wants to whisper to me at that point is, Paul, you know what? I can take care of this confusion. The question is, where are you with me? And that's my question for you. Everyone here is on their way to a destination. 
Connor Vogel was on his way to a destination. And he just arrived earlier than we had imagined. But he's home. Because he believed in Jesus. And you and I are on our way. And my question is, do you know the truth about Jesus? Have you believed in him? That even though when you die, yet you will be alive. So that's how he responds to Martha. Now, secondly, he responds to Mary. Mary comes along after Martha, and she asks the same question, and then she breaks down in tears and falls at Jesus' feet. And then we see this very passionate response by Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 36, Jesus wept. What, what you need at a funeral is truth and tears. You need to hear and know the truth But you need to know that Jesus understands the pain, the difficulty of this situation for Mary and Martha. And so he weeps. And I've always had a little question about why is Jesus weeping right here? I mean, Jesus knows he's he's just about ready to raise Lazarus from the tomb. So I would have been like, well, watch this. But but he he breaks out in tears. And I'm asking myself, now, why would Jesus do this? And. Of course, commentators are all over the place on how they answer this question. But certainly Jesus sees the tears of his friends and he mourns with those who mourn. So even if his heart's not, his heart is broken for Lazarus, but I think he's just moved by the tears of Mary herself. He loves Mary. And so he begins to tear up just from her tears. Perhaps Jesus, who's the creator of all good things, looks and sees the tomb looks at Mary and sees her trauma and says, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. Life wasn't supposed to end up in a tomb and trauma. But because it did, I had to come and give my life. So maybe he just is just reflecting on the the consequences of sin. And so he he weeps. Perhaps he's standing before this tomb and he feels a, a shift of weight. He's just two miles from Jerusalem where in a week he'll be hung on a cross and put in a tomb himself. And maybe he feels some shift of weight because he knows here to raise Lazarus from the dead is only going to take a command. But to to raise Lazarus forever is going to take a crucifixion. So maybe he feels a shift of weight, of responsibility, of what is it going to take to get Lazarus really free from death itself? It's going to take my death. And so he tears up. He begins to weep. Whatever the reason Jesus does this, we see two critical things coming together. The truth and tears at Lazarus' funeral. Finally, you see this skeptical crowd, verse 37. Jesus comes to the tomb and this crowd says, you know, didn't he open the eyes of the blind man? Wasn't he the one that opened the eyes of the blind man? I mean, if he could open the eyes of the blind man, he surely could have been here to help his friend. Back in chapter nine, Jesus had healed a man who was born blind, which is also a sign. A sign to get you to Jesus. See, he opens up the the eyes of the blind. I'm trying to open your eyes to who Jesus is. And these people either knew about the sign or maybe they saw it themselves. 
And yet when they see Jesus, what are they looking for? Another sign. Do you hear that in their question? Jesus, you could have done another sign. Jesus, you could have done another sign. Jesus, you could have done another sign. And so many people want that kind of Jesus. They just want Jesus to keep doing sign after sign after sign. And Jesus is saying, all these signs are pointing somewhere, people. Me. Once you've seen the sign, you're supposed to say, I see Jesus. That's all I need. Once I have the destination, I don't need to go back to the sign. But these people spend their whole lives looking for sign after sign after sign. And it troubles Jesus. He says he's greatly troubled by this hardness of heart. Even though they see these miracles, they still don't grasp hold of Jesus. They just keep hoping for more and more miracles. Many people live their lives that way. When you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, you just raise your hands because you can't say anything. So awesome. You don't go back and look at the postcard because you've already seen what's awesome. You don't need to go back and look at the sign. You've seen the real thing. And once you've seen the real thing, Jesus is saying, please, would you believe in me? Not believe in the signs. Believe in the person the sign is pointing to, and that's Jesus. So he's troubled by their hardness of heart. He's troubled by just their hunger for more and more signs. And so he gives them one more and one final seventh sign. Verse 40. Jesus turns to Martha, who's at the tomb as well. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Try to imagine what it must have been like to be a person on the scene that day. Roll away the stone. Oh, my gosh. One of his sisters says, hey, it's going to be a bad smell. He's been in there for four days. So they roll away this stone. There's a small opening. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Everybody looking at the tomb. And this man walks out of the tomb. Then what is everybody looking at? Jesus. All eyes on Jesus. Because what's spectacular about this is not Lazarus. What's spectacular about this is someone has this kind of power. Imagine being that close to that kind of power and all eyes now have turned on Jesus, the real destination. And I don't know if this is why this is in the text, but Jesus then says, hey, help out Lazarus. And I wonder if it was like they forgot about Lazarus. You see what I'm saying? Because what was so spectacular was Jesus. And once they had their eyes on Jesus then you can still have a tear for suffering. But once you have a hand on that glory, it reorients the rest of your life. 
So my question is, what's your destination? You and I are going to spend, if you have any length of life, having questions like Mary and Martha. God, I just, I don't get you. I don't understand why you're doing this right now. That's going to happen to everybody here. And you don't have to be at a graveside to experience that kind of question. It can happen in many different ways. But the question he turns back on you is not where am I, but where are you? Where are you with Jesus Now, the last thing I'd want you to leave thinking this morning is, wow, Jesus had that kind of power. I really better get my act together. (laughs) Lazarus didn't need to get his act together. Lazarus needed Jesus. Lazarus needed to see Jesus. And the power of conquering death. And so on this peak... Jesus is looking at another tomb where he's going to walk out and tell the whole world, I have the power over death itself. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Let's pray.